Hello and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique medieval and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. Before we get started today, I want to let you know that you can now support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. If this isn't your first podcast, then you probably already know that Patreon is a web-based service that lets creators, that's writers, musicians, podcasters, uh, lets them crowdfund their projects through small monthly donations. And in exchange, podcasters usually offer an extra monthly episode that's exclusive to supporters. Now, that doesn't really work for Agnes. The mission statement of this show is to bring scholarship to people who don't have access to it, to show non-academics how scholars work and what they do. Now, this work is already behind the paywalls of journal subscriptions and expensive academic books, so it would be counterproductive to put an interview behind yet another paywall, uh, even a very cheap paywall. So I will never put Agnes content on Patreon. But as you probably know, Clay Temple Media does a number of other shows, and we do offer monthly Patreon episodes that are germane to those topics. So if you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror literature, or TV shows such as Star Trek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's loads of extra content for you already on Patreon. More importantly, though, one of our Patreon goals, that's a monthly donation amount we'd like to achieve, will let me devote more time to Agnes and to release episodes every month of the year and not just when classes are in session, and and I would really love to be able to do that. So if you can chip in a few dollars a month to help cover our expenses, that would be really helpful and I would be immensely grateful. But now let's get on with today's show. Today, I am talking to Dr. Michael Stewart about masculinity in the narrative account of the 6th century Gothic War in Italy. Dr. Stewart earned his PhD from the University of Queensland in Australia, and he is now a research fellow in history at that same university. His article, The Danger of the Soft Life, Manly and Unmanly Romans in Procopius's Gothic War, was published in the Journal of Late Antiquity in 2017. Now, this is the first interview that I've done with someone who works on a text that is also important for my own research, and I'm really excited about the conversation, and I'm extra excited to share it with you. Uh, Dr. Stewart, welcome to the show today. Ah, Thank you for having me here. I'm uh, really happy to be here today to talk about my favorite historian, Procopius. Well, let's start with some background on the subject of your article before we get into the specifics of of your claim. And and maybe even let's set aside talking about Procopius himself for just a minute. Can you orient us on the Gothic War? What was the Gothic War? Who was involved? And and how did it come about? Well, the Gothic War um, is sometimes included to uh, wars in the 6th century, the mid-6th century. It's often called the Byzantine reconquest or the Roman reconquest of North Africa in Italy. Now, the the words reconquest have become a little bit controversial. I tend to see the reconquest of North Africa, which begins in 533, um, is really a lightning campaign where a relatively small uh, Roman or Byzantine army, I'll use the two terms concurrently, um, rapidly takes Vandalic North Africa from the Vandals. And the Vandals had been ruling in North Africa since the late 420s, early 430s. The reason it's controversial to call it the Reconquest is that Romans returning uh, to North Africa and Italy, they had never really conquered them in the first place. Uh, For someone like Procopius or Justinian, uh, Vandalic North Africa or Ostrogothic Italy 
were always really Roman state, Roman provinces, though they did recognize uh, treaties had been signed between the Vandals and the Romans in the fifth century and between the between Theodoric, who's the early leader of the Italians in the late fifth century. Now, Justinian's efforts to retake North Africa and Italy, um, some people, earlier scholarship used to see this as some sort of long-term plan on the part of Justinian. But recent scholarship now sees the Gothic Wars or the Gothic Reconquests, which starts in the aftermath of the successes in Vandalic North Africa, as kind of just that. Justinian goes into North Africa in 533, in the propaganda from the Byzantines and Justinian, he's there to both protect um, Orthodox Christians from what he describes as Aryan North Africans, and also he doesn't recognize the ruler, Gelimer, of Vandalic North Africa, since he has, in Justinian's eyes, illegitimately overthrown the rightful Vandalic king. And something's interesting you see throughout Procopius is that he really has to justify that the Byzantines are in North Africa. So we can see that they're by the sixth century, that had been in North Africa for nearly a century. There is really an idea that the Vandals had a right to be there. Um, and we see the Byzantines really having to do, use legal terms and reasons to be able to take over North Africa. Now, in Procopius, you see that in in the, in Constantinople at the time in 533, there is a hesitancy to send an army into North Africa. And the reason for this is there had been previous attempts in the 5th century for the Romans to retake North Africa from the Vandals. And each one had failed. There had been a couple attempts under Theodosius II, a Western emperor Majorian, um, started to have a campaign, but the ships were burned in the harbor in what is now modern Spain. And then Leo I in 467, in cooperation with the Western Emperor Anthemius, launches a large-scale campaign, which, um, if we believe uh, contemporary sources like Procopius and Malalas, was actually much bigger than the campaign that was successful by Justinian. This campaign is a three-pronged campaign. It looks like it's going to succeed. In Procopius' account, Geyseric, who's the Vandalic ruler, actually is about ready to give up. As he does, Procopius, probably borrowing the 5th century historian Priscus, tells a story where it's the commander of the Roman navy, Basilicus, who is going to be also an emperor later on, a usurper. It's his cowardice. Which or betrayal, which leads to the Byzantine army being the navy actually outside of Carthage being being destroyed and decimated by Gelimer's fire ships. So the attempt to t retake Vandalic North Africa in 467 ends in a dismal failure, and we know that it had long-term circumstances not only for the military pride of both the Western and Eastern Empire, but it also had economic. Um, consequences. And we hear that a large amount of uh, money was obviously spent on the campaigns, both in the East and the West. And probably most importantly, it undermines the reign of Anthemius, who is from the East and is ruling in the West at the behest 
of Leo, the Eastern Emperor. So we see, particularly in the early parts of Procopius, a real hesitancy for the Byzantine to go on overseas campaigns, much like I would say the feeling in America in the aftermath of Vietnam. So the Gothic Wars really, uh, most people believe, isn't a long-term planned campaign, but comes about because of the successes that Justinian has in North Africa. So we can see that in March 534, Gelimer, the Vandalic king, has surrendered um, to Belisarius. In late 534, Belisarius has a triumph in Constantinople, where he takes the Vandalic king Gelimer um, in chains in his march through the streets of Constantinople. In May and June of 535, there's plans to retake Sicily from uh, the Goths. This is done secretly because the Goths and the Byzantines at this point had been allies. In 536, Belisarius takes Sicily, um, rapidly followed by taking Naples and Rome by the end of 536 in Tuscany. So it looks like at the beginning of the war, it looks like it's going to be a pretty easy, quick victory for the Romans. And by 540, um, the Gothic king is taken in chains into Constantinople, much like Gelimer. But as happens in a lot of wars, things weren't quite so simple in Italy as they were in North Africa. And then the Goths uh, have a new king, uh, Totila, who from 541 to 552 um, revitalizes the Gothic armies. Um, and we have a tit-for-tat warfare, which sees Italy um, devastated by warfare. Procopius describes the suffering of the native population, their starvation. And it's really at this time, it really is the Roman and Gothic armies that really might, for some reason, bring on the Middle Ages. Up until that period, uh, the Goths had been uh, thriving pretty well under Ostrogothic rule. And that's kind of what my article is about. My article is about... What happens when the big brothers from East Rome, Constantinople, return to the West? You've mentioned already that Procopius has written this narrative account of the war. Can you tell us just a little bit more about who Procopius was and, and what was his involvement with the war? How does he know about it? Procopius is born around 500. He's born in Caesarea, which is in Palestine. It's a coastal city. Uh, we suspect that he was born in one of the uh, elite aristocratic families. There's hints that his family may have been involved in trade. Um, we pick up hints about him in his, uh, in his writings. Now, the, the, he actually is... We think that he starts off, he gets a training as a lawyer. He's like a lot of administrators within the empire. He goes to Constantinople to get a job. And it's a job that he gets. He serves Belisarius, who is, I think I mentioned earlier, the leading general and commander um, of his day. And from 527 to 540, he is actually present at the campaigns he's describing, both in Persia, both in North Africa, and he's in he's in um, with Belisarius in the early the first five years up until about 540. He's witnessing all of the battles that he's describing. Now we know that he he serves as what we, 
at first a sumbolos, which is an administrative manager. So he's um, and he then he becomes an assessor, which is an, avi- an advisor or counsel. We think that he may have actually been writing a lot of the material that uh, speeches say for Belisarius reports back to the front to to Justinian and his inner circle describing what's going on. We know that he's closely involved both with Justinian and Belisarius. So it sounds like some of the text is actually coming out of official reports that he's writing. Who is the audience that he intends to read this when he puts this all together in the form of this narrative history? Now, this is the big controversial topic. Of course, we we don't know who precisely the audience is. Now, it's important to say that he writes in a in a classic Greek from sixth uh, century Athenian Greek that's a very high level of Greek. So it's not the everyday Greek that's spoken on the street. So it'd have to be someone that was highly educated. So some people think it's the like-minded administrators in the empire. There's also. Um, an idea that it's also for generals, future generals, and the officer corps that has Greek, um, because it's written in a language that's often quite closely written to ma- military manuals. So when you look at his descriptions, say, of the Vandalic campaign, it closely follows what you see in, uh, in military manuals. So the way he describes the way you should set up battles, the way fear is involved in battles closely follows military manuals. So there is an idea that generals in the officer corps that did have uh, Greek could read these manuals as well. And this might explain why he writes in very repetitive language. He His descriptions of people are are, are have very simple vocabulary and repeat words. Um Some people think that the Greek he wrote, that everyday people wouldn't be able to read it, but I disagree with that. I actually find his Greek quite easy to read, and I'm a non-Greek speaker, and I actually and my students can read the Greek fairly easily. And I I compare it a bit to Shakespeare. I don't know if you were in high school when you had to read Shakespeare. You knew that it was in English, but it wasn't the English you were speaking on the street, but it didn't mean that you didn't understand that. And I think that's important because we know that these histories were also read out in crowds and that people didn't need to have a high level of education or high literary education to be able to enjoy these histories. He does tell us as well that his first seven books of the history were immensely popular throughout the empire. So once again, it's a question we can't answer with any certainty, but I argue for a larger audience than some people allow. And we'll want to keep this in mind when we get into your argument about how Procopius is is using masculinity and, and concepts of gender, which uh, we should talk a little bit about now, at least the, the background of which I, I have two questions about this. And the, the first question is rather broad, and it, it's this. What are historians of gender interested in? What, what types of questions do they ask? Our questions, I think, are about what made a man a man, what made a woman a woman. In the old days, we used to think it was fairly constant, that being a man was a set virtues and vices, and that being a woman was a set uh, values, virtues, and vices. And that closely followed, actually, ancient assessments. But what we've really started to realize is that uh, concepts like gender can really shift and change over time. Um, And when I looked at Procopius, when I was first interested in it, I was looking at the... uh, 
Unix. Now, Unix were always the bad guys in ancient literature, and they also had a kind of liminal gendered nature. They could be both masculine and feminine, male and female. Um, And it seemed there was at the beginning in the Roman Empire, uh, say the fourth century, there was a very negative image of Unix. What we see in Procopius is that their gender or their 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 identity as eunuchs doesn't stop them from achieving great things. And a lot of gender scholars like Sean Tuffer and Catherine Ringrose see in the fifth century a real shift in the attitude towards not only the gender role. Ringrose actually argues that eunuchs are a third gender, but they can teach us a lot about our own time. And you can you can learn a lot about ancient max- masculinities, I think can teach us about our own. Now, when you talk about masculinity, a lot of uh, historians will shut off straight away and say that you're being anachronistic, that that you're using uh, current concepts to try to learn about a past that had far uh, far different ideas about gender than, than we do. I actually found when I was looking at the um, the histories and the sources that they seemed way more concerned with manliness and unmanliness than we are, and that it permeates the literature, and in particular permeates Procopius. Well, my my second question is, how can we use narrative histories to access such cultural attitudes about gender? I mean, aren't narrative histories just an accounting of facts, a a, a report about stuff that happened? Um, And it's really, uh, this is a really good question for someone like Procopius, because He's a class, what people would call a classicizing historian. He's following ancient models that in some cases are over a thousand years old. So you see themes that have uh, cropped up in Thucydides, um, have cropped up in Herodotus, will show up in Procopius. Even the names are the same. He changes names to better fit the old names in Greek classicizing history. So even the way he lays out his history, um, it, it... all um, have to stand up to the ancient style. So I guess the question is, is how much is he just following um, what authors are supposed to say about battles, what they're supposed to say about plague? Um, are his battle descriptions actually talking about real battle? And that and that's really important. Um, my colleague uh, Connor Watley has argued in his recent book is despite the rhetoric that Procopius, since he's along with warfare and probably writing the reports, is actually describing real warfare. Um, and he's describing if in a stylized way the actions and deeds of real personalities. This doesn't mean... Um, that we should take everything ha- he has to say for granted, and he will he will shift um, shift the temporal state. He'll lie um, if it suits his needs to follow um, to follow these classicizing patterns. So when you read about the Vandalic um, histories, it, it's important to know that he starts with the failed campaign by Leo in 467, and in that stage, the Romans look like they're going to have an easy win. Um, He also talks about in the 5th century that the Roman emperor's family, uh, Valentinian III, had been captured by Geyseric when he sacks Rome, and they had been taken back to Carthage as captives. Now, isn't it interesting that the Justinian's campaign in North Africa is a mirror image of that? 
Now, at the beginning of the battle, it's the Vandals who are overconfident. It's the Byzantines who are fearful. And at the end of the battle, it's Gelimer who is super sure he was going to be in win, being marched through the city of Constantinople with his family behind him. So we can see that there's a lot of themes, even things on fear, that are found in these earlier writers. Now, in between all this, I think you can find a reality of what's happening. Now, historians are confused on what reality he's telling us. Is he writing, as Averil Cameron has argued, a classicizing history that's a bit of out of touch with the world of his day? Or is, as Anthony Caldellis has argued, is his reality more reflection of 6th century Constantinople, a place that's not as religious as most scholars believe? Well, now let's get into your argument, what your research is. How does Procopius employ his concepts of masculinity in the Gothic Wars? When I um, looked at Procopius, um, to to understand him, I tried thought that you really needed to understand those classical writers, Herodotus, Thucydides. So I read and went through all their works. But I thought it was also really vital to take him within a 5th and 6th century uh, world concept, that he's not writing in isolation. Um, he's writing in a world where historical writing is thriving, and it's not all just pro-Byzantine writing. We have uh, writers in the Latin West writing. And what you see in the 5th century, I st- kind of started with uh, Claudian um, and Ammianus. You see a real rivalry even in the year, say, 500 or 400 over who were just were the real Romans. Um, And you'll see in Claudian, uh, who is an Egyptian, but he's working in the court of Honorius, you'll see him attacking the Eastern emperor, and and he uses gender terms. So he says something, sister, when will you ever cure those East Romans of their effeminacy? Um, And then we see Ammianus, who's an Easterner. East Roman who had served in the army, who's who that also has moved to Italy to write a great history in Latin. We see him attacking the 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 elites and Romans as un-Roman um, and unmanly. So we see as early as 400, you see a real rivalry beginning to grow between the East and the West. And when Western writers want to attack the Byzantines, it's also always uh, or often uh, calling them Greeks, unmanly Greeks. So we see it not only in uh, Ammianus or Claudian, we'll see it in writers like Sidonius. Uh, you'll see uh, Anthemius being, being called a Greek dilettante. Conversely, you'll see in the East uh, them attacking the Goths as un-Roman and unmanly, whereas as, as, um, as John Arnold has written in his recent book, on Theroderick and the Goths, he has argued that the Goths' uh, success in Italy was selling themselves not as barbarian Goths, but as manly, reinvigorated, and martial Romans. Um, so I, looking at it that way, I started seeing in Procopius this real rivalry uh, between the Goths, who you'll often see in Procopius when they attack the East Romans, they're either attacking them as Greeks or as an army made up of barbarians. And Procopius kind of takes the middle grounds, but he definitely highlights the martial character 
of the Goths. Um, he's he's very positive towards the Goths, but funny enough, it's the Italo, I'll call them, the Italo-Romans, as he almost describes them as very non-martial and unmanly, and they're under the dominance of the Goths, and they need to be rescued by the true Romans, and I argue that the true Romans are the East Romans, uh, led by Belisarius and even generals like Narses. And I think that's a, a theme that underlines all eight books of the wars. Um, and obviously, in my viewpoint of Procopius, when read that way, he provides a much more positive image of Justinian's wars of reconquest than, ha- than has come out in recent literature. Can you give us some examples of some incidents or some places where Procopius is using these concepts of, of gender or concepts of masculinity to differentiate among these peoples? It, there's a great description during the uh, the first siege of Rome, and these are probably some of the most martial um, and detailed parts of the war, which is probably because Procopius was there. But he he has a scene. So Rome at the time is surrounded uh, by walls. Um, the Gothic army, after Belisarius has taken it in December of 536 has quickly regrouped and come down from Ravenna and surrounded the city. In Procopius' version of events, uh, there's only a small garrison of East Roman soldiers facing a massive army of Goths, and it looks like the fall of the city is inevitable. Um, In his version, Belisarius is so undermanned that he has to employ the native Italo-Romans as guards um, to protect the city, but they they are very non-martial. They don't want to do it. They see the Goths are going to quickly take the city. So, so Procopius paints this scene, and then he has a he has one of the Gothic um, commanders come to the wall, and he basically tells them, "Why are you allowing the city to be taken by unmanly Greeks um, who are nothing better than thieves and sailors?" Um, and people who love to go to theater and stuff. So he's really painting an image of the of the East Romans as unmanly Greeks who are different from Romans. Um, now, Procopius also paints the Goths as totally overconfident, and their overconfident stems from their belief that barbar- as barbarians and as Goths, they were far superior um, warriors. And much of this is based on their superior Andrea. And Andrea in Greek is very close to what, what we call courage and also often is defined as courage, but it, it's, it's a real gendered version of courage. So it's more, ma- it can be manliness or manly courage. And the vocabulary that Procopius uses, um, you'll see him, he'll have debates um, between Belisarius and the Gothic king over whether um, Belisarius was motivated by rashness or true Andrea. Now, as the story concludes, as you're building up to the battle, it looks like the uh, East Romans are going to be overwhelmed. But Belisarius quickly proves that he's a true Roman, and he easily routs the Goths in these early battles. Um, And Procopius sets up a lot of themes like this. He'll use speeches that use gender on either side, um, and then the truth comes out in the result. Um, So that's it's quite interesting how he uses uh, gender. Um, He also uses an example I think I talked about in the article, um, that the ship of Aeneas. So he tells a story where the uh, natives of Rome, the Italo-Romans, had kept a model of Aeneas's ship. And we all know that 
And Aeneas is from Homer, the legendary founder of Rome and Italy. Um, and he's after that episode, he then goes into sea battles. And it's quite interesting because, once again, the Goths seem like they ha- are the dominant naval power. But the East Romans, through their manliness and courage, defeat them in a key battle, which Procopius actually says turns the tide of the war. And it's quite interesting because in another um, source, Charippus, um, we see that that Justinian actually, uh, he's describing the soldiers of Justinian as the sons of Aeneas. So I think there's really a linkage between the two, this idea that the East Romans from Constantinople are the true Romans, and it's that the Italo-Romans, because they haven't taken on their typical martial role, role that plays an important factor in Roman manliness, they have lost a bit of their Romanness. Well, it sounds like there are three different groups here in Procopius's text who have different relationships with masculinity or different gendered identities. What can this tell us about identities and about identity politics in the 6th century? I think what it tells us is that, um, obviously, that these ideas that we have of Goths, Romans, Byzantines are in many ways, yes, they are modern constructs, but they're also constructs that are changing in this period. And it's in this period that we have this idea that there's micro-Romes. So for us, it's easy to call Theodoric or Totilla, easy to call them Goths and see them as others, or see the Italo-Romans as natural allies of the Byzantines from Constantinople. The texts show a much more complicated reality. It's, it's similar in North Africa. Um, Procopius creates an easy contrast. For him, it's basically there's the East Romans, then there's the native peoples that used to be Romans. He calls them the Romans of old. And then there's the Vandals. Now, this is an East Roman view of the situation. We also have the Moors, uh, who are the tribal um, North Africans. So he creates a very clear cut of these identities. But we know that the identities were much more fluid than that. And we have Roman Roman soldiers quickly integrating themselves both into North African society and into Ostrogothic Italy, where they change sides rapidly. Um, So the constructs he creates, I think, are out of touch a bit with the reality. Um, We're very much getting, even in Procopius, an East Roman vision of their reconquest. I think I would just end with this, this notion of who is the true Procopius, and, and when you go online and for probably the co- uh, the casual student, most of us were introduced to Procopius through the secret history. Um, and amongst mo- most circles, it's very confused why he wrote the secret history, um, which attacks obviously Belisarius, Justinian and Theodora to uh, to an enormous degree, which for someone like Cadellus means that Procopius was against the campaigns, was against Belisarius since the beginning. Other people use secret history. They see that he gradually became dissatisfied with the campaigns eventually, um, that it's kind of a Vietnam War syndrome as the wars dragged on. He writes in around 550 um, an attack that he hopes to include later after Justinian dies. But I tend to think that Henning Bourne um, in his recent article is on to something, that the secret history um, is written very quickly and may in fact have been written by Procopius because he was so close 
to Belisarius and Justinian. And he argues that an usurpation was in the air around 550 when he writes this. And far from being his true um, view of Belisarius and Justinian, it's actually a means to ingratiate himself with the new clique that's going to rule. And um, it brings up some, um, some really interesting ideas because when you look at secret history, it's not just what's included, which is basically just on those four main characters, but it's who's left out um, and who it's aimed towards. So I think they may be on to something. And I guess I would end with just saying that Procopius is someone it's, – it's very difficult in classicizing historian to find truths because – Whereas we see military defeats and failures defined by the actions or failed strategies, in the ancient world, failure was also often linked to one's moral failures. So when Belisarius loses, it's often, he says, well, it's because his wife was dominating him or he listened to his soldiers too much. And we see that as a criticism, but Procopius may be using it as an excuse um, so I think we do have to realize that they wrote and read and saw history differently for us. So the failures are often have to be be um, articulated. So why are we failing in in Gothic Italy in the 540s? It's not because they don't have a big enough army or because Totila has motivated the Goths. It's because there's been greed and moral failures amongst the Byzantine leadership. So I, I think that's a really important way to see history. And when Procopius is writing wars, he's always talking about the good and bad, both in the campaigns um, and both amongst his major characters. So it shouldn't surprise us that when uh, Belisarius starts to fail, that he also, in secret history, it's because he's being greedy. <laughs> well, Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your research. Okay. I've been happy to be here. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me in the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. Please do consider helping us out by becoming a patron on Patreon. We'd really love to do more podcasts for you. Next time, I'll be talking to Dr. Miko Long about monastic intellectual culture in the 12th century. And until then, awe wale.